Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Dred Scott. Scott's 2015 A Man Was Lynched by Police Yesterday is sadly immediately relevant in the wake of the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police last week. I'm immensely grateful that Scott was willing to come on the program and talk about that work and other work on such short notice. For 30 years, across sculpture, installation, performance, photography, and video, Scott's art has relentlessly addressed the racism within and failures of the American system. His work is in the collections of art museums, such as the Whitney Museum of American Art and the New Museum, both in New York, and the Brooklyn Museum. Scott recently presented Slave Rebellion Reenactment, a performance which reenacted a march by formerly enslaved people to seize Orleans territory in 1811. Scott is collaborating with John Acompra, who's been on the program a couple times, to make a film installation based on the performance's ideals. As ever, we'll have images of the artworks Scott and I discuss on manpodcast.com, but we'll also have a list of links to Scott's website where you can see fuller documentation of his work. We'll also have links to his Instagram account and to mine. As always, if you enjoy the program, please give us a five-star rating and review the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get it. Dred Scott, after the break. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. The center remains closed due to coronavirus, but you can wex from home with exclusive live streams, virtual screenings, curator suggestions, learning resources for parents, and much more. Go to wexarts.org for events such as conversation with curators Lucy Zimmerman and Jennifer Lang and artist Stanya Khan. You'll also find a video tour of LaToya Ruby Frazier's The Last Cruise with senior curator Michael Goodson and a collection of Modern Art Notes conversations with artists who've shown at the Wex. It's all at wexarts.org. Around the world, art museums, as community gathering sites, are making difficult decisions in the face of COVID-19. In this new two-part episode of the Getty's Art and Ideas podcast, President Jim Cuno gathers six U.S. museum directors for a candid discussion of the pandemic's effect on their museums. These insightful conversations address a wide range of topics, from the logistical challenges of how to reopen to the role of museums in society. Part one features Max Holine of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, Kaywin Feldman of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and James Rondo of the Art Institute of Chicago. In part two, hear from Matthew Teitelbaum of the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, Ann Philbin of the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, and Timothy Potts of the J. Paul Getty Museum. The Art and Ideas podcast can be found now on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Music. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Ebony G. Patterson, While the Dew is Still on the Roses, featuring the work of artist Ebony G. Patterson, born in Jamaica in 1981. This is the most significant exhibition of the artist's work to date, presented within a new installation environment that evokes a night garden. This exhibition will be on view at the Nasher Museum when it is safe to reopen. The museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. Meanwhile, visit the Nasher Museum online to find gems from the museum's archives. Here are special videos, articles, and podcast episodes featuring artists who have visited the museum and whose work is part of our collection. Here, too, are some greatest hits among reviews in the art press over the past 15 years. Visit nasher.duke.edu.
And we're back. Dred Scott, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me on. Let's start by talking a little bit about your great 2015 A Man Was Lynched by Police Yesterday, which for me is one of the major works of American art of, of this decade or the last decade, depending on how one defines it, <laughs> the decade. Its origins are, are plainly in the flag that was flown at the NAACP's Fifth Avenue New York headquarters between 1920 and 1938 in response to lynchings of black people. I understand that work was prompted by the North Charleston, South Carolina police's killing of Walter Scott, but I don't know how you got from Scott's killing to making the work itself. Did you research it and work toward it in stops and starts, or did it come to you naturally and effortlessly, if you will? More the latter than the former. I mean, so particularly at times when a killing by police becomes part of a huge social question and is sort of just so egregious, you know, the society thinks about it and I'm part of that. And so when, you know, we could list names, you know, from Mike Brown to Alton Sterling to Philando Castile to, to Sandra Bland of many people killed by the police. Some of them, there are names like Nicholas Hayward Jr., which people probably don't know, but, you know, I, I know when you have something like Walter Scott, which Walter Scott was stopped for a broken taillight, and he quite sort of sanely, it seems, you know, in hindsight, seems, fled for his life, and a policeman shot him at 30 yards in the back and then tried to cover it up. That was, because it was caught on film, it really stood out. And it was one of these things that even though I've been making a lot of work about white supremacy and racism and police brutality and murder by police for quite some time, this was something that needed a specific work. And the NAACP flag was something that many artists had been thinking about. I mean, most well-known was Terry Adkins. He would would perform with that on stage with him in a lot of his performances. And other artists had, had used it too. So I was just familiar with the, the original flag. I mean, almost within a day of, of seeing this Walter Scott murder, I came up with a, a sketch for this is what it should look like. And then I had to do research to find out you know, find the font, even though the letters would have been hand cut at the time and hand drawn by like a sign painter. And I had to find out whether the flag was actually black and white, which it seemed like in a black and white photograph, or whether it was say red and white, which it could have been in a, a black and white photograph and so things like that and just the size and, and things. And so there was a lot of research, but basically within a day I had the drawing within a week, I had a sort of a rough mock-up that I then posted on like Instagram or Facebook or something like that. And then within a month I had produced the flag that then was first shown actually in Des Moines, Iowa in a show and which, you know, was a good show, but it was somewhat ignored. And then when Philando Castile and Alton Sterling got killed within 36 hours of each other in two separate incidents, and I happened coincidentally to be in a show at Jack Shaman Gallery that Four Freedoms had organized, then the work, which they very quickly said, bring this, let's show it, because it wasn't originally in the show. At that point, it became this very well-known within the art world and, and broader sort of activist circles as well. The NAACP stopped flying that particular flag in 1938, not because lynchings and other killings of black people stopped happening. The NAA stopped flying it because their landlord threatened them. Their landlord on Fifth Avenue said, if you continue to fly the flag, we're kicking you out of the building. Is anything regarding that part of the flag's history important to you in the sense that 
it lives in your object or you hope there's a way it lives in your object? Well, I, I think it's important in a couple ways. I mean, the first thing is, I mean, I think people should really think about why the NAACP was flying the flag in the first place. You know, it was part of an anti-lynching campaign. And people should really think, what does it mean that you need an anti-lynching campaign? And there were about 4,300 incidences of, of racial violence lynchings that happened in the United States from 1865 to 1965. And so during the period they were doing it, it was, there were, you know, lynching was a very common thing, much the way black people being killed by police is very common now. But in the 20s and 30s, it was common and every black person knew whether they were in the North or in the South that they could be lynched for any reason or no reason whatsoever. And so that is very heavy to kind of consider. And then because they were waging this campaign, the landlord was like, look, this is making our building, our community look bad. Because, <laughs> I mean, after all, the campaign was all across the country. Their headquarters was in New York. And while there were lynchings that did happen in the North, it was more a Southern phenomenon. And so it's very interesting to understand that a landlord could say, look, you, this major civil rights organization, can't actually display a banner that's not hurting anybody, but is a political message I want to suppress, can't even display that in the North. And so that's heavy. And, and actually, you know, where my artwork has been displayed, I mean, the, the gallery, Jack Shaman was threatened in a variety of ways, including by their landlord for displaying the work in, in ways that relied on technicalities of their lease, but also the staff was threatened, you know, with physical violence for, for showing the artwork. And so there is a way in which that history of, of public response, even though my artwork has been very well received, both in the gallery world as well as the community more broadly, there are some people who do not want this message. And they think that it is extreme to compare the violence of lynch mob terror to the role of the police. But the police actually kill you know, far more people than at the height of lynching. You know, Lynch mobs would kill in a decade about 1,700 people at the height of lynching, at its highest peak. The police last year and the year before and the year before and the year before killed over a thousand people. And if you're black, you're about seven times as likely to be killed by the police as if you're white. And so these comparisons, while really based in fact, you know, some people don't want that to be a message that's talked about. So I think it's interesting that people who have the power to evict galleries or evict others and evict civil rights organizations are using that to, for political dissent. And then the third thing I'll say is important. It's like, you know, my artwork is an artwork. It exists in the realm of ideas in a way that's different than a civil rights organization, you know, was doing. They were waging an anti-lynching campaign and organizing people to stop postcards of lynchings being sent, to stop lynchings from happening, to hold people account. And this is more bringing that those ideas into society broadly through the art world I'm an individual artist. I am not part of an, an organization that is actually waging a campaign, say, to stop murders by police, even though I very much support those organizations. But this this does exist in a different space. And I think that it's important for people to recognize that we need both. I think we'll talk a little bit later on about how you have quite often used history as a material and, and specific moments and objects from the past as as material in your work. Two things I want to quickly note before asking my next question, two things I probably should have mentioned before now. The president of the United States when the NAA began this campaign in 1920 was Woodrow Wilson, who was, before the current president, probably 
the last most explicitly and specifically white supremacist president we've had. Oh, and the original NAA flag still exists. It is in the collection of the Library of Congress. So I guess particularly with with now in mind, um, we're taping this on June 3rd, 2020. How do you want your artwork to live in the world, which I guess is a slightly obscure way of my asking if it was and indeed is now your intent that institutions would wield it and fly it at specific, sadly necessary moments? I mean, I think it would be great if institutions did that, both if they acquire the work and had it on hand, but also if they had display copies to do that. And I I think that it is an artwork and it's different than say the NAACP, but it would really matter if institutions, and it will matter if institutions actually stand with the people. I mean, there's been a recent move for all sorts of cultural institutions to make statements about the the uprisings or re- rebellions that are happening in response to the you know the the just brutal murder of George Floyd in in Minneapolis. And that's a very good thing. I mean, the, some of the statements have been better or worse than others, but it's really good when these institutions are saying, "Wait, we actually realize that white supremacy exists and we realize that the police that everything black people have been saying is actually true and that we that's not the society we want to be part of we want to contribute what we can to change and so it would be great if art institutions would show this work and i think that it is somewhat telling that that's not the first response that institutions have had i mean i i hope that some institutions do decide to do that but this should be natural i mean in a certain sense it's one thing for these cultural institutions to say, make a statement that says, we're with the protesters. That's really good. But these institutions should actually use the social weight that they have to fight for systemic change. And that is complicated. I mean, they're everything from who's on their board. You know, do they have black people and other people of color on their board? Do they have curators of color? Do they have archivists? Are they bringing in work to the collection of black artists. Some of that is happening. Some of that isn't happening. Are there curators, not just assistant curators, but are there senior curators that are good black curators? And are they using their weight in the world to actually, I mean, institutions like MoMA, the Whitney, Guggenheim, SF MoMA, you know, some of which are are run and have conservative boards. But if they said, look, we are standing with these protests and we want the police to be held to account, that would be different than just, say, Dred Scott saying that. And yes, that would be risky, and some of boards would, would change. I mean, when, when it became known that, say, Warren Kanders, a producer of you know implements of torture and violence, was the you know the head of Safari Land was on the board of the Whitney. A lot of people said, "Why is a, basically somebody who makes weapons used by war criminals? Why is an arms dealer? What's what does he have to do being associated with a museum?" You know, while the staff at the museum, while people broadly in society were outraged by this, the the Whitney and specifically its board did not want to let him, you know, wouldn't wouldn't kick him off the board, and it took a lot of effort for him to be forced out and. I think that says a lot about the resistance that would exist, even though a lot of these institutions are good institutions and do a lot of really radical, show radical work, some of them do, that actually being part of more systemic change is something that would be challenging, to say the least, for them to do. 
I think of how one art museum, I think just last year, was asked by its local newspaper whether or not it had a black curator on staff, and it refused to answer. And it refused to answer the question. <laughs> I mean, it's like what we stick, we pretend we're sticking our heads in the sand, and nobody will know. I mean, it's it's a really simple question, but yeah, that speaks volumes. It's like in the post-fact era of alternative facts, you know, where where it's like. The president could say, no, I, I had the largest crowd ever. I mean, then uh, Zim saying, hey, we won't answer the question of whether we have a black curator. Well, actually, you just did. Yeah, you know, I shouldn't be protecting the institution, and I should be naming the journalist. It was Charles Demaray of the San Francisco Chronicle who asked the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, which has had a, a bad week. Yeah, their socials have had a bad week. So about a man was lynched by police yesterday as an object. Because I'm sure that as people and institutions are, 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 are listening, there are some thought bubbles going off. Could you kind of detail how that artwork works as an addition and as an object that may or may not be available for acquisition and presentation? So the artwork exists in a couple different forms. There are two editions of the work. There's one that is the more well-known version that is applique on nylon that's I think like 84 inches by 56 inches or something like that. And that's an addition of four plus an AP. And I think all of those are sold with the possible exception of the AP. And one is in the collection of the Whitney, which is great. Then there's a smaller edition, about two thirds the size that's screen print on canvas. And then a few individuals have that. There are still some that are available. And then because of the social import of this work, there are display copies in, in both the applique nylon, but also a screen print on canvas that's full size that have been displayed because there was a time, particularly in 2016, where a few museums and institutions were asking to display it simultaneously. And so there, there are a few copies of it that if, if an institution wanted to say right now, want to display it, that would be really good. And there would be display copies or if they wanted to acquire it and keep it in their permanent collection and then figure out a way to display it as needed, that would be great too. You know, it's the weird thing that, that the twisted way that the art world works on scarcity of commodities. And so you want to limit you want to limit the existence of something. So, I, hey, I have the unique flag. But on the other hand, socially, people are saying, hey, can I get one? Can I get one? Can I get one? I want to take it to a demonstration. I want to hang it out my window. I want... And in fact, I know one collector who had a copy who put it on the front of his door, just like his outside door of his house and, and sent a, you know, posted a picture on Instagram and and another collector who had a copy and they went to a demonstration and just stood by the side with their copy of this you know sort of precious artwork that they paid thousands of dollars for and they took it to the streets which was really great and so it is kind of this tension between trying to preserve value and therefore allow the work to be in museums and therefore to be written about and talked about and on display as well as to enable the, the artwork to go and be used almost the way the NAACP might have, have used it in, in a space that realizes that life, life and, these are life and death questions and it needs to be part of the public. But the main thing is if, if institutions want this, they're available in, in various ways and they should figure, you know, they should get in touch with me. I'm really easy to get in touch with. This is a good moment to note that on the show page at manpodcast.com, we'll have a link to your website, which is dreadscott.net. You know, another of the things that is really interesting to me about both A Man Was Lynched by Police Yesterday, but also a number of other works you've made over the last 30 years, is that they are both objects made to reference a specific eventual slash potential event, but also that their mere existence in as, as an object, that you have made them, 
serve as a reminder, in this case, that police keep killing black people. One of the things art students are <laughs> kind of told in, in the first week of art school is, is to avoid making work that too specifically references or embraces or is about one thing. To avoid making work that is about a single event. They are encouraged to complicate out beyond it. And I don't want to suggest that this work isn't complicated. But but still, it's a rule you've broken. You've, you've embraced making an object about a specific event. Is that a is that a a standard that you think through when you think about making artworks that may address specific events as this one does? Yeah, but one way the easiest way to answer this question is one word, Guernica. I mean, <laughs> one of the most well-known artworks in the world is a work about a very specific bombing that happened during the Spanish Civil War that Picasso made work about, and yet it is quote unquote timeless in many ways. I think that there are times when I've chosen to address specific instances or specific histories or specific moments, and I do know that if the work is good, that it will actually tell the record of, of this time, and that's really important. You know, I, I've been thinking a lot, but before the, the sort of rebellions against the police murder of George Floyd, I've been thinking a lot about how will people tell the story of COVID, particularly how it's impacting poor and black people. I mean, because black people are dying at about three times the rate of white people from COVID. And who's going to tell the story of a president that basically left people to suffer and die and is directly responsible for tens of thousands of deaths unnecessarily? People were going to die from this virus anyway, but the way the United States has handled it, and particularly in this case, the Trump administration, aided and abetted by the Democrats, you know, has have left people to die needlessly. And so I think it's important for artists to make work about some of these timely events. You look at how some of the work of Diego Rivera or Sequeiros or some of those works were very specific in, in the histories they were referencing. And yet we now look back and say, wow, it talks about a particular history, but the arc of history is longer than that. And these works enable us to understand our present by looking at that particular artwork that documents and memorializes that history. And so, you know, I do think that, you know, making powerful work that draws on history is is important. One of the things I, I tell people is like, I, I look at how the past not only sets the stage for the present, but how it exists in the present in new form. And so with a work like A Man Was Lynched by Police Yesterday, this question of this lynching, people think ah, lynching is a thing of the past. It's a horror from the past, and rightfully so. And yet you see with something like the murder of Ahmaud Aubrey or the murder of George Floyd, one by police, the other by an ex-cop, both caught on film. These are lynchings. It's not just the past. It's the present. And so when I'm using history as sort of a source in a medium, it is actually often to talk about the present. And so when I did a work like Slave Rebellion Reenactment, which was a reenactment of the largest rebellion of enslaved people in the history of the United States, it was actually a performance with hundreds of people that talked about this one particular buried history, but it was actually about our present. And so I, I do think that you know art schools are, are good to encourage students to try and make work that is lasting, but some of the times the way work is lasting is if you powerfully understand what's particular about that historic moment, including if it's one you're living in, and can concentrate what is so wrong or so right about that moment in ways that, you know, five years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years down the line, 
people will say, wow, that tells us a lot about then, but also hopefully still about now. Police. The, the power of police to operate extrajudicially is something that you've made work about before for at least 20 years. The, the, the first work I can think of is your 2001 Sign of the Times. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. But what it looks like is it looks like a yellow kind of diamond-shaped street sign that you would see, you know, like pedestrian crossing or something. And the sign says, danger, police, and area. And there are, I don't know, pictograms? Is that the word I want? Of a, of a cop shooting a man with his arms raised, or at least apparently his. So I'm not sure when you think of police as having specifically entered your work. So I guess when was that? And what were some of the ways you, how did you kind of think through in, including police either as individuals or as a system in, in the work? Almost as long as I've been making art, actually. I mean, there's an artwork I did, What is the Proper Way to Display a U.S. Flag, which became, sort of introduced me to the world nationally. That body of work was called American Newspeak, Please Feel Free. It was a series of installations for audience participation. I made it starting when I was 22, I think. You know, I was still an art student. And some of those works were actually talking about the police and how police enforce relations of exploitation and oppression. That's what they are. They enforce the exploitive relations that define this society, a country that was founded on slavery and genocide and is continues to be based on exploitation and oppression. And so some of those work have images of police brutalizing people and were taken from demonstrations or were, had quotes about police brutality. There was a work I did in, in 1999 called The Blue Wall of Violence, which was an installation that had images of sort of targets, well, had targets that had arms, sculptural arms that were attached to them that each held some object that the police then shot somebody for and claimed later that it was a gun. And in front of this was a, a coffin that police billy clubs beat on. That work was made in 1988 when it was shown in 2009. The police union threatened to close and close the museum that was showing it. And in fact, there were bomb threats that were phoned into the museum and death threats that were issued to me by police and police unions. So this is something that I have a, a long history with because it's just a defining feature of American society. And if you're an artist making work about the times you live in, how could you not look at one of these defining features? And that's how the police rule over the people here and particularly for black and Latino people. It is just causing tremendous death and suffering. You mentioned a couple works. There was also the 2006 Dem Doggone Knew a Thing or Two sculpture, which includes a cop shooting, you know, what is intended to be recognizable as, as historical African sculpture. I wanted to ask specifically about your 2009 I Am a Man performance in, in which you wore a signboard and walked through a city. And as part of that, or, or in the course of that performance, I should say, you encountered three or four police officers who stopped you. I don't want to use the word planned because I don't want to suggest that the four officers were, you know, were, were a comedy show style plant. So I guess the word I want is, did you expect or, or did you expect for that kind of encounter to happen? Did you expect for police to become involved in that performance? 
Well, I'll answer that question. First, the, I just want to briefly touch on the piece that you is called Dim Dogon knew a thing or two. And the Dogon were particular people in Africa that used that particular sculpture that I used. It was sort of a fertility sculpture, and it has a picture of somebody with their hands up, which they're common. I don't know the provenance of the sculpture, but I would be surprised if it were made more than a year before when I used it. I mean, these things are produced for a mass market, but it is based on a, a Dogon statue. And, and I do think that there is a relationship between a superhero doll or a cop hero doll and, and a, a traditional African sculpture with different figuration and, and formalist representation, but then with a figure with their hands up with a cop pointing at them. So anyway, as far as, you know, I, I never plan for the police to interrupt or interact with my performances. I do a fair amount of public performance, sometimes with permission, sometimes without. And with I Am Not a Man, that was a, a piece that I did that I didn't have permission for, and I just walked through the streets of Harlem, particularly across 125th Street from east to west and west to east, or actually, yeah, uh, from from west to east and east to west. You know, I, I had sort of modified the iconic I am a man sign to say I am not a man, and the I am, I am a man sign from the 1968 sanitation workers strike from Memphis, Tennessee, where the striking workers demanded to be treated like human beings. And so I particularly in 2009 when I did the piece, there was all this talk about America entering a post-racial era because it elected Barack Obama. And I've grown up in America. I know America. I know there was nothing post-racial about it. And as we're witnessing today, as far as post-racial, ask George Floyd's family how post-racial America is. And you know, I knew that in performing, if I were doing this performance, that the police might take umbrage and that it was not a plant, but it was just so a little behind the scenes during the performance, which lasted for about an hour, I was acting out various things that are the degrading and dehumanizing things that happen to black people just to exist in society. And sometimes I would walk down the street with my pockets pulled out. Sometimes I would be sort of spread eagled up against a wall or something. And sometimes I had my pants pulled down, you know, but I still had my underwear on. And part of that was when I went to do site research, a site visit for the performance the week before, I was there no longer than five minutes and the police were had basically pulled a man's pants down and were searching him, claiming that he had stolen something from some store. And so I was like, well, okay, this is... You know, if the police can degrade and dehumanize people like this, I can do this in my performance with this sign. And so when the police came upon me, they they saw that and they said, no, you can't do that. We're going to arrest you if you don't pull up your pants. And it's like, actually, in New York, I could legally walk down the street in boxers if I want. There's nothing illegal about it. But they were using the the threat of force to shape this performance. And people, you know, my photographer photographed that interaction. And the photograph I used was sort of the after the fact because it was more just the, the power of these, I think it was about five cops in the picture, confronting me with this sign. Because even after I complied with their orders, they were still menacing and threatening but I was the one that seemed to have the authority and the defiance in the picture and they you know look like props in a certain sense which they had become but they it was unplanned and it could have actually gone very differently I mean you know police encountering black people whether they're artists or not could end up with you know jail beating or death yeah they look confused in in, in the photograph we'll have a link on manpodcast.com to all of the performances we have, or will or will mention a link to to your own website so people can see the full range of documentary material. I guess one more thing while we're talking about I am not a man, the origins of the I am a man sign. Go back to the 1968 Memphis sanitation workers strike. 
1988, Glenn Ligon made a painting now at the National Gallery of Art, which references the same historical event. His says, I am a man. This is all along a <laughs> way of asking a really simple, straightforward question. Were you interested in referencing and engaging with Ligon's 1988 work as much as you were, or to an extent as you were, the, the 68 sign? I was more interested directly in the 68 sign. I mean, I obviously knew of Glenn's work, and I think he does a lot of really interesting work. I mostly don't directly engage other artists' work when I work. Sometimes I do, and I'm, you know, I'm aware of it. So, like, you know, with the the A Man Was Lynched by Police yesterday, I was very aware of Terry's, you know, Terry Atkins' work. And, you know, I think artists were in dialogue with each other. I wasn't a lot thinking about Glenn's work, and perhaps maybe I should have been, even though I was more referencing the source that the source of his work and the source of my work, which is this sanitation worker strike. And I, I think that with referencing historic events and historic signs, it's important for artists to go back to the original, even if it is in dialogue with other artists, because other artists, you know, like Hank Willis Thomas has used that sign. You know, I am uh, a man sign. Uh, Sharon Hayes has used it. I'm sure plenty of other artists have as well, and I, th I think that it will continue to be a point of reference because of how, how much that's said about that era, but also America right now. Except I do think you go back to specific artworks a lot, uh, <laughs> and specific artists a lot. Jacob Lawrence, Robert Indiana, Ai Weiwei. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I guess you. I got caught with my hand in the cookie jar, but that's that's three works out of you know a whole over. But yeah, you did actually pick the ones that I did very intentionally. I mean, the way way you know it's like I think that's really important to engage that. And the Robert Indiana is uh, you know I I mean yeah. So there are times when I do, and I but I the thing is I think there's a lot with within the arts. There's two. There's too much internal referencing within the arts that in order to understand a lot of contemporary art, you have to have an MFA or a PhD or be, you know, and sometimes friends with the artist and be one of two people who can really have access to what's being said. And I think that's tragic. I don't think that's what art's about. If if novelists wrote novels the way artists are trained to make work these days, nobody would read books. And and so, you know, I, I do think it's important, you know, we are in dialogue and there's several artists that I'm both literally talk to, but also been engaging their work with in some ways. But, but I, I think we should strive to make our work not so much reference other art of the recent past, but actually more talk about the conditions that led the previous artists to make that work. So with Jacob Lawrence, while I did very, very intentionally pay homage to him with the piece that I did called Revolt, and I, I just think Lawrence's work is so relevant for... Now, I also think that the conditions that he made work about, you know, particularly some of the drawing, you know, making work about the Haitian Revolution, that is something that more artists should make work about, regardless of whether they know Jacob Lawrence's work or my work or not. They should actually be making work that, that talks about Haiti and talks about slave rebellion and talks about rebellions overall. Another work of yours that you know certainly references other artists less directly than the ones you were just talking about is your 2007 Nixon Resigns, which calls Gober, uh, Gonzalez Torres, but is more legible, certainly more legible than the way institutions often in, install Gober, whereas uh, his newspaper pieces can be hard to physically read because of somewhat understandable challenges to installing them safely or, or in, in ways that take care of the, them as objects. 
And and I, I don't know, I've been thinking about Nixon resigns again now because it points to how the Republican Party is the same as it was, you know, as it ever was, as, as right-wing American parties were the same as they ever were. And we'll have a link to that on manpodcast.com as well. I also wanted to talk with you about fire, which you have used and referenced in your work. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? Yeah. I like fire. I'm a pyro, I guess. <laughs> an, an appropriately bad transition by me, right? An unintentionally appropriately bad transition by me. So you have used and referenced fire in your work going back at least to Money to Burn, a performance in which you burned $171 on Wall Street and invited others to join you. Are you, were you interested in fire as a specific subject and, and, and if you will, as an object, as something that's physical but isn't exactly an object? Or is it something that you found and find recurring in the work organically because it fits or interests you for other reasons? It was both very appropriate for the, the two works, Money to Burn and Burning the U.S. Constitution. It would be better the, to, to destroy money by burning it than, say, putting it through a shredder or something like that or tearing it up. But more than that, I mean, fire is, it's magical. I mean, you know, and I I think that I and other artists who've found ways to use that in, in their art, you know, humans are attracted to this this power in a certain sense. There was a, a really great, and I, I suddenly can't remember the artist in an Art de Pavera show that I saw in probably 1986 or something at the MCA in Chicago that had an artist who had all these basically gas jets that had turned into torches that were on front of a steel plate. So you go in this gallery and there are all these flames, which is, I mean, I'd never seen anything like that before or since. And it was, it was ama- amazing that they could get permission to, to bring, you know, basically open torches into a museum space. There are, are ways in which I think, you know, sort of our, our inner cave woman or inner cave man, you know, is, is attracted to fire and the, the idea of destroying, you know, the U.S. Constitution with fire or destroying money with fire is, is something that is, it harnesses a power that artists should harness in a certain way. And I suspect that, you know, if I'm allowed to live and, and keep making work for a little bit longer, I probably will use fire in, in other forms, but it, it's a very charged element. And so you have to kind of use it judiciously. And, and I don't mean just for safety reasons, but I mean more, it's like if you become the, the one trick pony that burns stuff, that won't be interesting anymore. In the context of fire, I wanted to raise your 2014 performance on the impossibility of freedom in a country founded on slavery and genocide. In that work, which you performed under Manhattan Bridge, I think, a retired fireman holds a fire hose that is throwing forth water and you are advancing on it and attempting to advance on it. So I'm obviously, or at least, no, not obviously, but I'm you know plenty familiar with the history of fire hoses in, as an instrument of racial oppression in the United States and, and, and indeed in, in how they exist in, in American art. But I wonder if you were, the way in that piece you keep coming forward and you keep advancing, you know, if, if fire is part of that piece, maybe metaphorically or referentially. Actually, I mean, 
Energy, yes. Fire, no. I think it would be disingenuous to, to claim fire in that. I think that, yes, firemen, but the, you know, the references to Birmingham 1963 and with, you know, Bull Connors firemen actually turning fire hoses on civil rights demonstrators. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about in my work is not how to just depict oppression, but how to envision and embody resistance. And so a lot of times when people look back at those images of like dogs being sicked on people or fire hose, people getting hit with fire hoses, we think that this is how terrible it was back then. And often we've come a long way since whenever back then was, but we don't interrogate and say, well, why were people willing to stand up to, why were they willing to be fire hosed? And that's actually the story that, you know, these were people that were trying to end legalized Jim Crow segregation and racial violence. And what backed up the reason why black people couldn't sit at lunch counters before wasn't just the law. It was that they would get lynched potentially. And so, you know, it was this tremendous violence that enforced these horrific relations of, of injustice and so people defying that law and those laws and those customs and those policies both were risking their lives, but also were doing stuff in pr profoundly courageous, collective, collaborative ways. And so I wanted to look at those moments in that way and then the energy to to be able to walk into a fire hose when the, the sane and smart thing is to get out of the fire hose, the water jet, is that energy was drawing on how these civil rights demonstrators had the strength to, to do that, and therefore, you know, I could too. We haven't talked a lot about art history, with the exception of one or two examples, but I did want to ask if Hans Hacke is important to you. I couldn't make what I did without Hans Hacke. I mean, it's really simple. I, when I was in art school, discovering, there were three artists. There were, I discovered Roy de Carava, Leon Golub, and Hans Hacke. There were also, I, and I should say, the Dadis and, and other other artists were very important to me, but particularly Hans Hacke. His strategies, how he, how he thought of conceptual work enabled me to think through the ideas that laid the foundation for the American Newspeak Project and thus what is the proper way to display a U.S. flag. I think he and I do things very differently in terms of much of his conceptual work is he's most known for institutional critique. And I think he does that quite well. And I was trying to use the tools in much more accessible ways so that an ordinary audience could think through some of those. I mean, think through some of the ideas that I wanted people to think through, but using the aesthetic strategies that Hakka and other conceptual artists used. And so in a certain sense, I don't care about the art world. I don't care about whether rich people buy a painting and that it gets handed down from generation to generation or whether slumlords, how they operate. I think Hans's work is very interesting, but more than that, I think what the breakthrough, how he tied conceptual work to political ends was something that was revelatory for me. And so, you know, I, I just, it's really simple. I wouldn't, I couldn't make the work I made and then enabled me to become an artist without Hans Hacke. I think as a critic, I'd also point out that the institutional response to your work and willingness to embrace it is similar to the institutional response and willingness to embrace your work. And and that's, you know, in a lot of ways, maybe most or always outside of your control and his control, except for what's within the work. Uh, last question. In, in you know, my non-podcast professional life, I work on the Civil War on a book and some other projects. And there are days 
the research and having to spend eight or 10 hours, you know, reading racist texts or reading letters written just after battles that describe gore and death just exhausts me. And of course, I have the privilege and the luxury of being able to have a certain kind of historical and personal distance from that work, personal distance that a lot of artists working now, especially black American artists, don't get to have. A lot of artists listen to this show. So with them in mind and with some knowledge of your oeuvre, I'd like to ask if you have strategies that you use to allow yourself to, to exhale and to take care of yourself. I'll probably give you a bit of a rambling answer to this because I don't know that the answer is straightforward. I mean, I'll start with something that Toni Morrison said, and in a certain sense, even more than Hans Hacke, I couldn't make the work I do without Toni Morrison and Public Enemy. But Toni Morrison, in talking about Beloved, which is my favorite novel, she said that she made a deal with the characters that if she went into the dark spaces that they are, if if she went into those spaces that the characters would have to let her out again. And I think if you know Beloved, there it is parts of it are tremendously dark. And so as an author, she, but as an artist, I have to become emotionally invested in exposing oneself to tremendous brutality and violence to understand it and to understand what gives rise to it and to understand how it could be changed. And, you know, I, I think that I would encourage people to be willing to go to some of these dark places, even if it is sometimes difficult. It is traumatic in some ways. But I think as artists, we make the world more knowable and understandable if we do our job well to people that don't have to spend as much time, you know, living with those characters. And so I I do, you know, have to spend a lot of time looking at images of in the past, I looked at images of lynching long before other people were, or, or many other people were doing it. I looked at images of, you know, tr- you know, civil rights demonstrators being brutalized. I had to think of, I mean, you know, in doing a project, Slave Rebellion Reenactment, which wasn't a, really about slavery. It was a project about rebellion and freedom and emancipation. But I actually had to understand slavery. So I had to read a lot about what, how enslaved people were treated. And that is, it is a lot of weight. But... The thing that actually gives me strength is knowing that the work that I make matters deeply for people and that I get a lot of joy both when I make the work and I say, oh, wow, I've, I've got a particular contradiction in a way that is enables people to see things new and in some cases bring them joy. And that matters to me a lot. I also think that the, that the question of self-care is is partially a generational thing. And I think I, I'm 55. I need to learn a little bit from a younger generation because they, I think many radical activists of the present have looked at, say, some of what the Black Panthers went through and realized that there were ways in which some of some of what they were doing was toxic. And I don't mean that the revolutionary aspect was toxic, but that the constant living in the struggle, you need to take some sort of break. And I mean, cycling is my relaxation. I'm an avid bike rider, a road rider, and I do try and spend time on a bike when I can, which isn't sort of always. And so like in a week like this, I'm spending less time riding than I would like, but that that is part of my self-care. But I, I do think that there are ways in which 
people do need to do some of that, but I would, but I would also throw the challenge back to a younger generation and to people more broadly that the self care can't be a way to turn away from fighting for justice, whether it is with art or novels or music or demonstrations or whatever. And there is no way we can actually create a safe space within a society that wants to remove our existence. And I think America, again, it was a society founded on slavery and genocide, and it's based and run on exploitation and oppression. And until that is gotten rid of, until people can get to a world that doesn't necessitate cops to enforce these relations of exploitation and oppression, we can't actually be safe. We might individually be able to create some safety, and, and I think that's important for people to be able to have spaces to give voice to what they want to say without having to be shot down with some racist garbage or stuff like that. But I, I think that if we, we actually the, – the, the care that we need to take is to enable us to, to be stronger fighters. And I don't mean that literally in the physical sense, but more – you know, we, we have to find the resilience, including collective resilience, including amongst community with each other to to be able to to cry, to say, no, I'm not OK because this situation is not OK. But then to get up and say, but the problem is there are people that are wielding guns and tear gas and, and canisters and the law and kneecaps and shields that are literally trying to push us off the face of the earth. And that if, unless we stop that, we cannot actually be free or safe. You know, it is, it is a challenge and I'm serious. I don't think I have all the answer. And I do think it is partially a generational thing where I do think my, my older generation does actually need to listen to and learn from some of these younger people who are shining a lot of attention on that. But I do think that when Malcolm X was talked about, look, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six, that's not progress. Progress is actually healing the wound that the knife caused. And I think that's, we, you know, there are people still wielding metaphoric knives and we need to, to stop that as soon as possible before we actually talk about really being able to have good care for each other. Dred Scott, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.